0: Let's pray together. Lord, um, holy men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote your words for us, these words, and I pray that we will receive them as your word and that they would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That you would fill us with your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel and wills to obey. That you would use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I remind you we believe that the Bible is the word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Luke 22 at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. So we frequently hear talk about the greatest, you know? Uh, We hear people say, well, you know, the World War II generation, that was the greatest generation. Or you hear people say, well, Muhammad Ali was the greatest boxer that there ever was. Or who was the greatest golfer? Was it Woods? Was it Palmer? Was it Nicholas? Is it Lefty? Who knows? Who's the greatest quarterback, the greatest coach, the greatest team? And we could go on and on. In this passage, you'll note in verse 24, which is, the verse that I want to begin my exposition, that the disciples are disputing, not discussing, they're not discussing, they're disputing which of them might be the greatest. They're having an argument. The Greek word can be translated argument. They're having an argument. There's a lot of strife, and there's a lot of contention that we would say is very out of place, right? I mean, this is the institution of the Lord's Supper, for crying out loud. Jesus is going to die before long. And they're sitting there disputing, arguing about who might be the greatest. None of them is excluded in terms of, well, who is doing the arguing. I don't think there was anybody in the group that was promoting someone else. And I think for us, there are several things that we can see in this passage. What makes a person great and what made Jesus great and how can I be great? But before that, why do we desire to be great? Why do we desire recognition? Everybody does. Well, I'll give you two quick reasons. We'll come back to these later. For one, we're made in the image of a glorious God. We're made for glory. And most of us are not living in glory, right? (laughs) Uh, Many of us have a good life, but we wouldn't say, well, I live in glory, you know. Uh, I have a glorious life. But we're made for glory. That's a reason uh, we we, we uh, I think we uh, exalt movie stars. There's glory, there's glamour. We 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 uh, liked Downton Abbey because they lived in such a a, a palatial uh, castle and things and and other images I could give you. There are many reasons you can sense in your own heart as you're you're drawn out to certain things. We're we're made for glory, and of course God's children will live in glory, and bask in His glory. The other one is we desire significance. And I'll say more about that later, but that's their problem. They desire significance and um, how to go about it. And I've said some stuff about that before, and I'll say some more about it because it's a problem that confronts us every day, okay? So look, first, let's look at the dispute of the disciples in verse 24. Several of them, if not all of them, are disputing. None is excluded. These are people that have been called by Jesus, have been discipled by Jesus. They've experienced the grace of Jesus in various forms and and ways. These are those who would become apostles, sent by Jesus specifically, and would wear the label. These are those who had had this same argument before. You say, you're kidding me, aren't you, Alan? No, I wish I was. But back in Luke 9... At verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. (laughs) Really? They've had this argument. And it hadn't been settled. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Well, you'd say, these guys are slow learners, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Look in the mirror and you'll see another slow learner. Yes, you will. But the beauty of the gospel is that God loves slow learners. God is patient. God loves repeat offenders, which is what we are. Jesus is very patient with us, and He instructs us to be patient with others. Here they are. They're having this argument. Jesus will be dead before too long, less than twenty four hours, for sure, the night before His crucifixion, in the upper room, at the Passover, at the first Lord's Supper. And notice carefully as verse twenty two and one and two and three, Uh, And just above this passage, this is just after a discussion, Luke presents it this way, just after a discussion of who might be the disciple to betray him. Oh, wow. Interesting. It's, It's just after that discussion, just before Jesus will wash the disciples' feet and go into Gethsemane to pray. And here they are disputing over who is the greatest. Temporarily, at least, the roots of this would be seen in their their lost sense of significance. They're driven by insecurities. They're driven by their insignificance. Remember, uh, these men are, by and large, nobodies. Uh, If you're watching, and I don't say you ought to or ought not to, but if you're watching the chosen, one of the things that comes out so clearly in that is that these men were nobodies. In that culture of the day, they're pretty much nobodies. Matthew's ostracized. Uh, Peter and James and John are fishermen, which were pretty low uh, on the social uh, and economic strata, um, and and they're ordinary people who want to be significant, and so they've lost that sense of significance. They they're they're empty. They're hollow. They've lost their sense of sin, I think. They're being driven by pride and ego and selfish ambition. Uh, it was read earlier do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. They're certainly not doing that, are they? No, no, they're not. Uh, James 3, where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your uh, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, They'll be jealous, there'll be disorder in every evil practice. And so the fruits of this, this insignificance are this expressed concern of who's the greatest. an open debate. And you know, the amazing thing is it wouldn't be so surprised if that was us, we'd probably be sitting around the table thinking these things. We just wouldn't have said them right. <laughs> we, we wouldn't have been. Uh, discussing it openly with Jesus sitting there at the table, but they do. And we think of where they've been, where they've been with Jesus, where wh- who they are, the context, it's, it's just amazing. The sad truth is, I think if most of us had been at that table, we would have joined in that discussion. I'm not sure of that, of course, but uh, I wouldn't immediately exclude myself. I assure you of that. So let me give a few um, lessons I can draw out of this so far. Everybody wants to know two things. Everybody wants to know two things. Do I fit in? And if so, where? That's true at school, the office, the church, at home. You know, we think there's a pecking order. We think of a totem pole, and there's only one image at the top. That must be the most important, we think. When I was a kid, we played a a game we called King of the Mountain. I don't know if you play that today or uh, whether it's got a different name, but if it was any pile of sand or dirt, somebody would get on the top, and he was King of the Mountain, and everybody else tried to push him off the top and get up there himself. Do You play that. Yeah, that's what they're doing. It's not as sophisticated as, as, I mean, unsophisticated as what we did as kids, but that's what they're doing. Who is the greatest? If we don't find our fit, if we don't find our fit, if we don't find our place in God's work and world and the drama of creation and fall and redemption and restoration I don't believe we'll find it in a way that will satisfy our aching and longing hearts if you're a Christian you're a a child of God and that's your identity you're as one who is in Christ you're united to Christ and the gospel is where we find our fit and so that's where you can find it. And I've said this, I think, but I'm going to say it again. What the tragedy of so many Christians is this. They say, I need to be forgiven, so I come to Jesus. Will you forgive my sins? Yes, I'll forgive your sins. And then you, you look for your security and your significance and your satisfaction in things other than Jesus. And you wonder, why doesn't it work? Because Jesus is the whole package. That's why. That's where we get our security. In his hands. That's how we get our significance as his children. That's how we get our satisfaction in serving him. Those things will satisfy. So, that's the first lesson. Here's the second lesson. No one is immune from the selfish ambition problem at any time. These men are Jesus' close followers. They're with him at the table. And it happens. You might say, could that happen at church? I've been watching it for decades at church. It sure it happens at church. Yeah. Thirdly, I pointed out earlier that they had just been in a discussion about who was going to betray him when the discussion broke out about who was the greatest. Um, I think there was a natural, maybe sinful, but natural, not surprising connection between those two. In, In Galatians 6, when... Paul is instructing the Christians of Galatia in verse 1 about how to reclaim straying brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because you see, when we're dealing with the obviously broken With the obvious problematic, there's a tendency to pride. That's what's happening here. Oh, somebody's going to betray him. Well, it's not going to be me. Maybe I'm the greatest here. And in church discipline in Galatians 6... So he says, look, don't go, go after the brother or sister that's straying. Go help them. Don't, don't, don't let them go away. That's not loving. Go and bring them back. But be careful. Be careful or you too might become proud and arrogant and look down upon them. Fourthly, if you look carefully in the language of verse 24 you find that they are concerned of how they will be regarded in the eyes of others. um, Or in this passage, rather. Look at the language here. How they will appear in the eyes of others. Which one of them appeared to be or was regarded to be the greatest. You see, they're working on the horizontal to get the greatness rather than working on the vertical. And the horizontal generally will not give you a sense of security and significance and satisfaction. We must first be concerned with how we appear to God. We must beware of becoming a slave to how we're viewed by others. We must learn to live before an audience of one, and that one, of course, is God Almighty. Fifthly, this is a persistent sin, even for the disciples. Some, you should never think... It's, I should never think we should never think that this could not be a problem for me. Uh, we should not think we can put it to death completely. Um, sometimes I can feel pride welling up in my soul. Can you feel it? Are you? Are you? Do you sometimes feel that? I, I was talking to a friend, a lady, a, a missionary, um, uh, a wife of a missionary friend in Virginia yesterday, and she said. Oh yes, Alan, we've been listening to your sermons on the internet. No. When you feel it, when it begins to rise in your soul, deal with it, friend. Deal with it. Deal with it. Where selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every evil thing. Competition. We're a competition culture, and I'm not anti-competition in some aspects of culture, but in the church, it has no place. It's destructive of true fellowship. It separates and divides rather than unifies and builds. Next, it seems to me that this dispute kills the Roman Catholic theory that Peter was the recognized head of the 12. This is after Peter's confession, after Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. And if Jesus had appointed Peter, then I don't think this dispute could have ever taken place in anything like a serious manner. And lastly, just this far, learn something about the kind of people God can and will use to accomplish his purposes. (laughs) These are the apostles, right? These are the guys that are going to turn the world upside down. They're just garden-variety sinners like you and me. Do you believe God can use you to build his kingdom? Do you believe he can fill you with his spirit, forgive you, transform you? You better, because he can. When you think he can't, you think it depends on you, which is wrong. (laughs) It depends on him. So, the dispute of the disciples. Secondly, the practice of the Gentiles. And he does that by a negative illustration. I'm going to speed up a bit on this point. Uh, The practice of the Gentiles, when he says in verse 25, he he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. And so, he's talking about, as Gentiles, those outside the church, And they represent the ways of the world. And it focuses on how they go about power and control. And the resultant put it in quotes, greatness. And he's saying this because the disciples are too much like them. And they should not be. They want to be esteemed as kings or esteemed. Or as the uber wealthy or the politicians are today. Or as those who give great sums of money away. Kings have power, authority, control, or considered to be great. They love to exercise power and authority and control, so they're thought to be great. Where does this touch us today? Well, it's people that want power. People that want control. People that want authority. I give you almost trivial illustration, but it's it's true. Uh, And maybe help you see what I'm talking about. Most little league baseball umpires and soccer referees do a good job, even if a thankless job. But there's a saying out there that says, Beware an umpire or referee who has no power or position or prestige anywhere else in his or her life. Because some love the whistle. Some love the place. Some love the position. Some love the power of making the call. You say to me, Alan, are you saying to be a good umpire, referee, you need to be a Christian and find your identity in Christ? No, not everybody, but it'd be better. (laughs) It'd be better. You need your significance in another place, or you're going to seek it in the wrong place. It's sad to say, they're church leaders just like this. Don't become a church leader ever just to have power and be considered great. It's not what the church of the Lord Jesus needs. This thing about benefactors is very complex. Um, back in that day, what they did um, is that the wealthy kept taxes low. And in order to be well thought of, they, they, they were benefactors. They would, they would keep the city budget like this so they could build the local library or build the local park or do this or do that and then be thought well of. That was a benefactor in those days. And Jesus is saying, not saying that they cannot be rulers or should not give money away. He's just saying that the, what drives them and the manner in which they uh, do things should be different. They should be led by service, not by decree, but by example. That's how they should lead, by, not by decree, but by example. Let's, look, let's go to verse 26. Um, he's, this is a different design for the disciples. He says, not so with you. You're not to be like that. Leadership in the church is to be different. It's to cherish characteristics that are different from those that have just been described. You don't throw your weight around. You don't throw your authority around. You don't bless to be a well-thought-of benefactor. He says, become as the youngest. Become as the youngest. Well, but why the youngest? Well, they didn't have privileges. They were the ones with the least status. Um, they were the ones given the humblest and the hardest jobs in the ancient world. Age gave privileges. The young had few. It's a reference to those without expectation of honor and reverence. It's actually the opposite of the 12. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Let the greatest of you become as the one without privileges, without status. Become as a servant, become as a table servant in your attitudes, and your actions. Don't count any job too lowly. Be willing to do anything that's necessary Jesus is giving them and us an alternative way to see greatness. Though he doesn't want us to be motivated by greatness. He wants us to seek to be servants. And the question before us is, will we? In the passage that was read earlier, the first, the Old Testament passage, Jesus is described as the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Jesus was the servant, the ultimate servant. So you don't have to have an MBA to be a servant in the church, you don't have to be wealthy or cool or uber educated or hipster, all you have to be is a servant. All you have to be is a servant. So Jesus compares that with his ministry in verse 27 and says, look, the the greater ones are the ones that are reclining at table, but I am among you as one who serves. I have become incarnated. I've identified with you, and I'm here, and I'm one who serves. He is the servant of the Lord. He washed the feet of the disciples. He lived under the law. He died on the cross as the servant of the Lord. He died on the cross as the propitiation for their sins. Behold my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The Philippians 2 passage that was read earlier points to this same thing. So then, Jesus in verses 28 and 29, he commends them for their loyalty and he covenants to give them the kingdom. You will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Wow. Honor then. They will be honored then, but not so much now. They will judge then, but not so much now. That's good news. That's really good news. That that longing in our hearts for glory will be realized. We will eat at his table in his kingdom. This sacrament is just a foreshadowing of that. You shouldn't think that Alan serves the Lord's Supper. I'm standing in for Jesus. He serves. He says, come. He says, eat my body, drink my blood. It's Jesus' table. It's Jesus who's the servant. The main thing in this passage is Jesus' radical teaching about how greatness comes. It's not by seeking to be great. It's by giving our lives away in service. And what will that take? It'll take faith. It'll take faith. It'll take big, big bucket loads of faith to think, well, if if I don't seek to be great... But everything about my being says, be great. Everything about my culture says, be great. But Jesus says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. What can motivate us to do this? What can humble us? What can free us up to serve selflessly? Well, if we look at Jesus and his example, if we look at him high and lifted up on the cross, we see him lifted up into glory. We see that in his life it was humiliation, then it was exaltation. And we'll see that he's saying that our lives should take the same pattern. So who's the greatest? Who's the greatest member of Chehalem Valley Presbyterian Church? I'm going to say in just a minute. No, I'm Who's the greatest member of Shehalem Valley Presbyterian Church? It's the one who serves the most and the best. So we probably don't know. We probably don't know. And that's the way Jesus would have it. Right? That's the way he'd have it. Because he takes the nobodies and he makes them somebodies. He takes the Mephibosheths that are lame in their feet and brings them to his table. He takes a smelly fisherman and brings them to this table and to that future table. He takes a despised tax collector and brings him to his table. Jesus served us to the point of death in order to save us and in order to teach us how to live. And so will you live as a servant? Will you live as Jesus lived? Will you trust him for eternal life and every day to guide you how to live? Let us pray. Lord, our God, forgive us that we have all too often gone the world's way, seeking significance in the world's way, putting ourselves forward to be thought great. Lord, you died naked and alone on a cross. All these men had fled and you're the greatest. We acknowledge you today as the greatest. We acknowledge you today as number one. We ask you to give us the faith to live like that. In Jesus' name, amen.